Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jessica Jones Podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hi, Matt. I give good talk. Jessica Jones, episode 107, a.k.a. Top Shelf Perverts, is brought to you by the Stars and Tykes Talent Agency. Reminding you, stars aren't born, they're made. Wow, well done, especially with some darkness for the episode, Pete. And of course, now it's time for some surveillance. What did we see in the episode? Our episode begins with a rather unusual shot, Matt, along the hallway ceiling, headed into uh, Jessica's office slash apartment. There is a knife on the table visible as a male hand goes by, uh, then looks in a drawer. There's a picture of Hope, and um, suddenly we realize this is Kilgrave, who Matt decides to, shall we say, um, leave his mark. Yeah, it's it's something, as he uses her toilet, it's something that is, it feels wrong. And then you're like, everybody goes wee-wees. It's not like he's, you know, leaving the other one. He's not going to flush it down. It's just this notion that it's, it's psychologically invasive to be using someone's bathroom without their permission. And then you think door about open, the whole... Man. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't even we're going to say, well, of course, the door is open because television is a visual medium. <laughs> that all may be true. We need to see these things. But it's just it's just it's the casual nature in which he's relieving himself in someone else's home in which he's not invited. Then you get to the whole po- possible second layer of, you know, marking your territory and animalistic, you know, you know, use of urine in that regard. And it's just the whole thing is skeevy and, and and let me preface much of our discussion about Kilgrave in this episode to say David Tennant is an amazing actor and and the fact that he is not naturally creepy but is naturally charming just adds to the fact that this man can point his back towards a camera and do a pretend whistle and it it somehow isn't funny and it isn't anything other than just incredibly creepy and gross Yeah, it's effective. So by the time that he's in the bedroom and then hears the knock and it's Ruben and they go through this dance of who are you? What are you doing in Jessica's apartment with the lights off? And Kilgrave is funny here, despite being creepy, you know, that the lights off suggested no one was here, but you couldn't take a hint. And, uh, you know, we come to find out that there's Ruben with his banana bread or Robin's banana bread, um, and that, uh, you know, he's he's looking for Jessica. And uh, it's not clear if... That's the one thing I'd like to know if Kilgrave is using his powers or not. Like, just some, some sign of that effect. He, he says, tell me, uh, who are you? And Ruben uh, explains he's the neighbor... Um, you know, why did he bake the banana bread? Because he loves her. And then there's this look, Matt. And unfortunately, as we know, it's the last that Ruben ever receives. 
Absolutely. And I mean, there's so much going on in this scene that <laughs> it's almost it's almost uh, difficult to know where to start. Let's start with this. Ruben and later on in the episode when we ha- when we're in the police station, it is an example to the actors of the world out there. The actors listening that they're, you know, it it's clichéd but there are no small parts. The performance that Ruben gives here, I mean, it's sad, it's funny, he's sympathetic. Uh we'll we'll hit that again later on in the police station, but Pete, one area where I will uh, disagree slightly is I thought I picked up something in in the performance here of Ruben that when Kilgrave switches from conversation to command, to giving orders, I thought that the actor just melted ever so slightly. It was just a little bit of a release in the shoulders, a little bit of a, uh, of, a of a bend in the neck, just to kind of suggest that idea that that without sparkle, without you know, without CGI effects, that when Kilgrave does his thing you get a chance to let go because now you're not making this decision. Now somebody else is. Um, I thought I just picked that up a little bit in the actor. Uh, I agree there's times where it would be useful to kind of, you know, for it to be more clear. But, I mean, what a scene and your heart just goes out to this guy. I'm I'm not going to deny that may have happened. Um, and I think from a writing room standpoint, you probably don't want some visible effect and you know we've had readers write in listeners write in that they they thought they they detected a hint of purple or something like that there is a lot of subtle use of purple in this episode we're going to point out um but definitely not there so when we transition here to the bar and jessica getting cut off and thrown out onto the trash great moment with the homeless guy and that still, and it's a through line throughout this episode, Jessica is a sucker for uh, hard cases that she offers this homeless guy who who just told her that she stinks. <laughs> <laughs> the Blimpy's uh, punch card that's two away from a, from a free sub. So that is Jessica Jones in, you know, characterization right there. Thrown onto the trash, hanging on, to the bottom of the desk like a wad of chewing gum completely without flavor uh but still you know in it for the underdog pete there must have been somebody in the pre-production of this show that said hold on you want to talk about uh gender inequity you want to talk about metaphorical and not, and not so metaphorical rape you want to have an episode that 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 openly shows uh at least the start of the abortion process and you also want to have the funny in this show but you know what pete you can't have you can't have salty without sweet and vice versa and it's a better tasting show to have with all these larger issues these darker issues these serious issues they're made all the more important by jokes like this. I mean, just the very notion of a homeless man declaring her to be stinky. It's it's funny. It's really, really funny. The whole scene is funny, but it also doesn't doesn't undercut the fact that she is, as we're about to learn, undercover, but she's continuing to be self-loathing because she says, of course, she smells like a piece of garbage, you know, because she is. It's 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 phenomenal. But Matt 
Uh, Jessica's not there for the trash. She's there for the dirt. Yeah, here we are again. I mean, it's not a new, new case, but I love how the show is able to rely on these different cases to kind of give her stuff to do, um, give her private eye type stuff, and that lets her interact with her characters. Here she is, Pete. She's uh, been tailing uh, Wendy, the future Dr. Mrs. X Hogarth. Um, And as Wendy enters the subway station, the brilliance of using New York in in the fall and winter is apparent. It just feels like a cold, less welcome place. I'm sure some of that, too, is, you know, due kudos to how it's lit and how the editing is and the camera angle and all that. But it just feels like a place that 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 yeah feels like feels like New York in in in. December after midnight, you know, it's it's the devil's hour, Pete, and uh Jessica's up to some devilish stuff here. Yeah, and she wants Wendy to sign the divorce papers, holding her at one point over the tracks, and then she mistakenly drops her after this discussion here about real shame, about the hurt. Uh, the disgust you see in someone's eyes, uh, the black ooze that you sweat from your pores. And it's at that point that um, she's dropped Wendy. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> there's there's a serious dark humor to this scene. And she then, uh, you know, jumps down, throws her up, on to the platform there and they have this look through the passing um, train that could both freeze water and probably make you feel what she was describing inside. That certainly is an important look, but the one that spoke to me more was that moment after Jessica throws Wendy onto the uh, onto the platform, and Jessica just looks at that oncoming train, takes a long look, and I buy that for a split second she's wondering what is what is it that would happen if I didn't jump? You know, am I okay? Do I end this pain? Is it just going to get a whole bunch of people hurt, and I'm going to dust myself off and have a couple of bruises, a couple of cuts, and move on? I think for a split second she – I'm not saying she's considering suicide, but I think for a split second she's considering alternatives before instinct and better sense uh, takes over and she jumps out of the way. No sooner is she back on the floor of the uh, apartment elevator that Malcolm, clad in a headband, uh, finds her, wants to know how long she's been there, and – he, I'm sorry, she wants to know how long he's been doing jazzercise. <laughs> I, I, I love so much that we get to see more of the real Malcolm. I mean, yes, he's battling his, his addiction, trying to stay sober, uh, keeping sober, at least as far as we know. Um, there's just such a genuine sweetness to him that, that we saw last episode. And, and again, hats off to Ika Darville, who somehow placed that in the character despite his his self-destructive introduction here uh you know all the way back in the first episode and pete as he helps her stagger into the apartment i couldn't help but think of that first episode it's quite a reversal now he's the one who's okay she's a little wobbly and then pete i found myself worrying for him because he takes a bite of that banana bread i'm saying oh no it's probably poisoned yeah, there was a little bit of that worry as uh, he was telling her that she needs electrolytes, something solid in her stomach. 
Um, but then Matt, she goes to bed and it takes a second and then you see the blood. Wait, is it hers? No. We find Ruben there dead of a knife wound, self-inflicted to the neck. She's got the blood all over her hands. Malcolm, of course, uh, you know, in his sober state, uh, takes it very difficultly. Uh, there's the shoe print, and she knows Kilgrave was there. And Pete, for me, the key, or at least the the the, the shining star in this moment, was that of the uh, the performance of Kristen Ritter. She's, of course, shocked as any of us would be, but you just you just sense how overwhelmed she is as somebody who is a survivor of trauma and she in in as long as it takes for her her thinking brain not the instinctual portion but for for that thinking portion to say he is dead because of me because this man is still right. still coming after me all of that goes through her all of that goes through her face and it's just this this sense of feeling trapped as a survivor who's now being put through this hell again. And it's, it's all in her face courtesy of Kristen Ritter. Yeah. And, and there's the line there. She says, I can't fight this, but it's Malcolm who talks her back that he's going to call the police and she's lamenting and connecting the dots for us as viewers. This is the third death she is directly connected to. So he hangs up, of course, and uh, she says she's going to end it. And he asks, like, end yourself. But this other option of going to jail, but the right jail. And this is where she searches the Internet for what is repeatedly referred to as Supermax prison and not a Supermax prison. Because it's my understanding, Matt, a Supermax is a type of prison, not a name of prison. Pete, a quick search of Wikipedia reveals that uh, there are, for better or worse, many Supermax prisons in uh, in this country. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, the fact that it is take me to Supermax, although it's certainly not put that uh, woodenly, uh, there, there are many options available to her. Well, we've got a lot of uh, top shelf preverts in this country matt um but she refers to it as a high-tech mousetrap and this is some place that you'll be able to bait Kilgrave, that he won't be able to get through seven layers of security that he'll have to use his powers up close it'll be recorded she'll have the proof that she needs to expose him and she wants to bring in the detective who questioned her about the schlotman murders who was already suspicious of her from the 15th precinct you know the guy let's call clemens who comes on duty at 8 p.m and now matt we have a time kudos to the show for uh again using an actor you know no, there are no there are no small parts who really just sticks in your mind and the, the, the immediately when detective clemens appears on screen uh in a little while anyway he's recognizable and even this reference you know they, they give enough exposition to kind of get your memory jogged you know when there was the, the hope murder and he was suspicious of me and all of that um but you kind of this is a guy whose memory has has uh, been hanging around in your old noggin there so uh and again that's what that's what you get when you get a get a great actor even for a small part pete with that we go to trisha's apartment where uh 
Pete, you could tell that she's a modern lady because uh, she's on top of every situation. It's just it's just two blonde wonders enjoying life as being a blonde wonder with another blonde wonder. Don't talk. <laughs> uh, well, other than the sound of not talking, shall we say, the phone rings once, the phone rings twice. Uh, Trish is ignoring it, uh, but she knows, however, Pete, that it's Jessica and she's dodging her calls. She doesn't want to talk to Jessica until she has something concrete on Kilgrave, that is. And in fact, Pete, she has a lead. She does, um, despite the fact that uh, she's worried Jess is just going to try to convince Trish that this was her fault, the van losing Kilgrave, um, that it doesn't matter. She thinks she's got something here. And there's the little dance with Simpson, who, from what I understand, is not Pete, in this Pete, I think that's, that's, that's the little death is what they call it in French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the dance with him in this episode is he exists for other people to say things. He really does not do anything on his own in this episode, which I, I will take them to task a little bit, including a very unclear portion in the middle of our story. But uh, she doesn't want to say, and then she finally does, that uh, she has used her past as a child star, which gets followed up deliciously in this episode, um, to tell them that her old stalker is back and that she's got the protection detail that Kilgrave has hired. And uh, she also mentions uh, the hermetically sealed room. Yes. They want to get him and throw him in there. So I thought it was it was uh, interesting that they noted it just simply because, you know, my theory, spoiler free here, is that we'll be returning to that. Um, that was my thought initially. And then, you know, we got Kilgrave much closer to that conclusion, uh, you know, with the whole the whole portion of the van and all of that. So. It's possible that they just kind of, you know, built that to be a bit of a misdirect, but I think it's too good to not be used again. And the fact that we get the reminder here is a little bit of a clue to me anyway. Uh, Simpson, however, reminds her that some people should simply be removed from this earth. And uh, Trish makes it very clear that she wants Kilgrave to live until he wants to die, which, wow, powerful statement there. Yeah, it was. And... To flip from there to the steps of a courthouse and Hogarth's walking up with Pam and, and she's in the zone there. Uh, Pam is apparently graduating from the office to the courtroom with exhibits and, uh, you know, needing to make sure that her lovers, her, her soon possible fiancé's uh, rhythm is going to be in check here to uh jessica telling her she needs a lawyer side note now pete i i've never been in the court let alone in a federal courthouse which i believe Famous that last was. words my friend well hey you know what so far asterisk so far um i don't know that uh pamela's neckline while appropriate for <laughs> the office when your boss is also maybe your future wife that's one thing but uh a little 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 plunging neckline there for for you know the 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 judicial branch if you ask me but but hey what do i know got to fire that temp though matt um the whole thing here you know we go from a fraud case to um 
Jessica telling her that she needs to, by nightfall, if you want to get these divorce papers taken care of, get me into a supermax prison. There is the reminder, of course, from Jerry that that the supermax is a living hell with real demons reserved for truly the worst people. Uh, Top shelf perverts, Matt. Hey, cannibals, serial killers who make mosaics with their finger with the uh, victims' fingernails. And if that's just not a chilling uh, mental image, I don't know what is, but it's very specific, as Jessica knows. <laughs> I thought that it was an interesting point for the story to try and remind Jessica, if there is such a such a thing, to just you know, it, it's a moment to acknowledge that Jessica has done bad things, um, even if you factor in not understanding Kilgrave's powers completely. Like, you know, if you're, if you're saying, Oh, this is, this is some excuse. And, you know, there are these bad people looking for reasons why they did stuff, blah, blah, blah. Nonetheless, you know, she is not a demon. Yes. She has some demons in her, but she's not one of truly the worst people. And it's just, you know, hopefully it's starting to get through to her that, uh, you know, that there is a way out here and she's not, she's not completely garbage. But she tells Hogarth here, and Hogarth is concerned, if you're going to commit a crime, I'm obligated to say something. And she said, you know, uh, it's already done. With that, we cut to Jessica's apartment because we kind of don't know what the done is. Uh, Malcolm is apparently still trying to help. Uh, he steps out of the hall, or steps into the hall, rather, and runs into Robin. And uh, Pete, Robin has a BS meter the size of West Texas, which that is also oddly specific. And I love how the actress's performance continues to be 10% over the top, but it's glorious and it's wonderful. And as we get more of it, it's kind of sad, too. Yeah, I love the nickname she layers on Malcolm, String Bean, and later Q-Tip. Um, it, and there's this, like, revulsion, and at the same time, uh, th- there seem a, an attraction there, Matt? I think that the... the I don't know how much story we have left of Robin. I am sad to see that Ruben has left the picture here, but these two characters offer such a weird, wonderful, conflicted, mixed up, you know, check all of the above type thing. I could absolutely see her both, quote unquote, a little bit racist, as was referenced uh, by her brother in an earlier episode, as well as you know, completely turned on by this, you know, handsome guy that Ika Darville is, that Malcolm is. And uh, I, I think with Robin, all is possible in this, in this easily excitable, just, just, I don't know, bundle of fire. Well, whether she's from the South or not, there's certainly a little male Yule going on in this character. Um, if I can get classical here. Uh, she knows he's not, quote, getting a toothpaste, which might have been the greatest line in this entire exchange, <laughs> a toothpaste. Um, but, you know, that she knows um, Jones is hiding something about her brother and the initials uh, inside a heart on his Etch-A-Sketch and, and just the, you know, the the detail we learn post-mortem about Ruben makes him 
all the more endearing as a character. Absolutely. It is simultaneously hilarious and sad. And it's also, you know, if we're going to turn off the, the funny just for a minute, you start to kind of get this picture of for as over the top a sister Robin is, oh, she's protective of her brother who may not be at a full adult, you know, faculty here, um, which makes it all the more sad. I mean, it's this, it's this tragic and beautiful and exciting pair that these two are. Right. And, um, you know, when Jessica goes to the bar here, we're, we're still, you know, hurting from that scene before knowing what Malcolm does and, and even trying to, uh, you know, plan around what Robin might do. But uh, we learned from Roy that uh, Luke has taken time off, which Jessica is glad for. Um, and she wants to leave the message that, uh, you know, whatever. But uh, Roy interrupts her that, uh, oh, you love him. You want him back. You're going to have his baby, which is an interesting phrase, given the two characters have had a child together in the comics. Um but uh, that she, that he's heard it before, that it's best to move on, that he won't miss you. He, the only one he misses is the one in the grave. I think that it's not too much that he says that. I think, I mean, it certainly is. It's in his, you know, yada, yada, yada. Here's another babe with the broken heart. Uh, the fact that it's a little wink to the comic that it may be foreshadowing uh you know who knows but to me that's kind of you know that's that's fair game you contrast a little bit of humor there with just how jessica looks in this scene particularly unbeautiful particularly beaten up particularly chewed up and spit out and it's just you know it's just roy kind of laying it out as it is you know he's he's the morning after guy kind of kick kicking him out uh, then, Pete, we end with something that I thought was a little too much on the nose, particularly on the heels of, you know, oh, have his baby, like in the comics. He uh, tells her that she needs uh, time to swim or fly. And I just thought that was, that was one comic book joke too many. Well, I liked it in the context of his setup about, you know, why don't you burn bridges? Um so so there or what happens when you burn bridges you got to learn to swim or to fly so it, it worked for me um it's here in the story that wendy having been thrown onto subway tracks earlier goes in to see hogarth and we're thinking all right she's handing her the divorce papers but instead matt it's the blackmail from that aol account pete look we all at least those of us of a certain age, we have our AOL past. We remember the little yellow guy. We remember what it was like before AOL. Did I hear a sniff there. I heard a sniff distinctly. <laughs> from fr- from me? Yeah, like a sniff. I, I, I remember the days of yore on on the AOL, uh, and we all have we all have our secrets. But Pete, AOL remembers. And here, uh, Wendy showing that, uh, I guess, you never delete a juicy email. Uh, and uh, I like how dismissive she is of Pamela, calling her naive. Um, 
It is, of but course, she's revealed not. That, at the uh, same time, she says you're you're beautiful, but naive. Bottom line: now it's out in the open that uh, Jerry had bribed a juror way back when, and uh, it's it's either give over seventy five percent of her assets, or the uh, the New York Bar Association finds out about it. Uh, definitely a, a bit of a sticky wicket here, Pete. And that Pamela defends her, oh, I knew about it. And then there's that exchange once Wendy's left that, you know, it's difficult to defend you when she knows more uh, secrets than I do. So, you know, Hogarth's, the, the whole thesis of that scene was that she cares more about her career than she does about her life. I think those are the words we need to take away. Pete, with that, we're off to the future, at least the future for some adorable little actors and actresses at the Stars and Tykes talent agency. And it's basically every awful stereotype you'd think of. Uh, We don't get her name initially, but we get Dorothy coming out, calling in the next person, then recognizing Jesse, indeed, uh, welcoming Jesse in. And there's, of uh, of course, a well-placed It's Patsy poster on the wall. Yeah, and- there's a lot of detail in this, epi- in this episode, in this part of the story. You know, I love Zuckola because it tastes great. And hearing that again and again makes you love the line even less. But apart from the four little girls that are all repeating this at the same time, <laughs> the hairspray, the fidgeting, okay... There is a fairy festival poster, a, f- a fictional production poster on the wall there that lets you know just the kind of crap programming they're, they're filling, okay? And then on the uh, It's Patsy poster, Matt, in Dorothy's office, there is a distinct purple flavor. You know, there is. I had not... I had not- consciously kept that in mind but you're absolutely right speaking of color i like how the corner in which her desk is it's this it's this kind of like strange shade of black it's a little kind of chipped away this is not a welcoming office area this is not hey come on back little girl are you gonna be the new cola girl are you gonna be the new this it's 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 a weird space that feels slightly run down slightly uh I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to quite say, you know, like pimpish, because you know, it's that would be a, perhaps a step too far. Although not really with Dorothy, since we know where we're where we're headed with her, and we get some more info on her later in the story. And this discussion they have, you know, drugs again for uh, Trish. That's to my mind the first time we had heard anything about that. I love the protective aspect of Jess's character for Trish. Um, it's it's endearing for a character who already in this episode has referred to herself will will be gentle as a piece of garbage. Um, but oh yeah, it was the doctor who had over prescribed the drugs. Um, you know, the idea of responsibility versus remorse, what went on there, and then thrown in the face that um, they took her in as an orphan, that that's got to count for something. But what is it, Matt, that really gets 
Dorothy's goat in this scene? Uh, well, there certainly is the reminder of the agreement that she has to stay away. It's like a real restraining order. Stay away 500 feet. Is that to what you refer? No, it's the royalties. That ah, yes. If you don't do this, they'll stop coming. Wait a second. I'm going to stand. I earned those. So this is the worst stage mom who is now running a talent agency. So you can only imagine the corners they've cut or the horrible breach of ethics that's going on with whatever they're arranging through this office. Pete, I know a stage dad and at least his face with which I interact is like, Hey, whatever. My kid's really lucky. And you know, he's working hard for this. And then I always tell him, you know, keep working hard and, you know, if it all ends tomorrow, it's back to a wonderful, normal life. You know, that's the attitude you should have. I, I mean, you you get that everything that you've heard about this mother already, whether it's hyperbole in terms of, uh, you know, half the people at the such and such festival getting a little, uh, you know, whether it was fully half, whether it was, you know, a couple, whatever it might be, you believe everything, you know, Again, great casting choice here. Somebody who does not have a lot of time to be simultaneously uh, a competent business owner, uh, somebody who has been a success, you know, successful as a talent person, a stage mom, whatever you want to call it, but also somebody who is rotten in the core, but not rotten to, uh, all the way to the surface. And you know, from here going to uh, Simpson, uh, tailing the security detail, which. Either he's wrong and they're not security or he didn't know what he was looking at. Um, but they are outside the, the house and they're moving in here on, uh, you know, Birch Street and Higgins Drive. And, um, you know, he says it doesn't look like they're up to much. I, I couldn't quite get my arms around this scene, Matt. Is he lying to Trish or does he not understand what he's seeing? I think that we are meant to infer, because it is not made super clearly, I think we're meant to infer that he is taking over this situation as the special ops guy, as the cop. He is controlling the flow of information away from the talk show host, away from the weird superpower person, and he's... I think he knows he's seeing the security. I think he knows it's awfully weird that this bad guy has bought a house in, in you know, the suburbs. And I think he knows he sees Kilgrave walk out there. Um, and I think that, I think that he's conscious of of all of that and not sharing it. I don't think he's uh, he's brainwashed under Kilgrave's spell, etc. I agree, though. It's not made kind of abundantly clear. We complain so much, Pete, when shows absolutely overspell stuff here i would like just a couple more letters just so i could figure out the word yeah i mean it was it was incongruous but just trying to figure out in the context of where we in the episode he sees them go in so he's clearly placed them them both there at the time you almost wondered you know was he manipulated by Kilgrave but didn't see Kilgrave um when that had happened earlier 
Pete, with that, we go from him uh, not giving Trish all the info to uh, to Trish uh, arriving at Jessica's apartment. Malcolm is there. I kind of got the impression uh, that Malcolm had called her there. Uh, he was worried that despite the fact that uh, that uh, Jessica has done nothing, she's going to get in trouble. Uh, she cho- shows Trish the body. Don't scream. Indeed. That was, again, I mean, it wasn't kind of even ha-ha funny, but it was certainly a little darkly humorous uh at, at, at the funniest but um it's a very very effective scene particularly as trish takes out the gun you know holding it on him it's a reminder that trish is somebody who has been victimized in the past and i think who thinks of herself as a recovered past tense victim then there's a brainwashed cop trying to kill her then there's that weird neighbor from down the hall who is showing her a dead body and i think she very quickly goes back to that scared place and i'm certainly not being uh critical of that i just think whereas jessica looks at herself as a survivor or in the process of surviving her trauma trish thinks it's behind her but then it comes comes bubbling back and uh, just couldn't help but think, as a side note, Pete, that in this scene we have two people from Australia in New York <laughs> playing New Yorkers. Right. Did she pull the trigger or did she shift her grip on it when he told her 8 p.m. tonight? I think she pulled the trigger <laughs> and it didn't go off. She the character? She the yes. actress? Okay. Yeah. Um. I, I'll, I'd have to go back and take a look at that. It would be interesting if there was a little whoops-a-daisy there and nobody caught it. Well, well it except, of course, old Pete. You know, she, she she definitely moved her hand on it, and I wondered how much of an affect versus, you know, oh, it, it didn't go off either I, I've got the safety on or whatever. But clearly she had intent to make Malcolm worried about this. Um, and they talk about how Jessica needs this help. Uh, meanwhile, she is in a taxi. Uh, she's got, as she notes, 56 minutes of freedom left, although it looked suspiciously light <laughs> for, uh, we thought before. 704, yeah. Yeah, we thought before winter, too, which, judging from the beautiful day at the end of the episode, I'm thinking no. Um, but, uh, that she's going to, uh, to take chances here. She goes to, uh, a bridge. Don't believe it was the Brooklyn bridge, but. Oh, I thought it was the Brooklyn bridge. One of the many, uh, bridges in the New York metropolitan area there, uh, snaps the bolt on the door, heads all the way up the ladder to the top. And there's the voiceover, Matt. I hate goodbyes. I've always just disappeared. This one deserves a last lingering look. And she checks out the city there. Pete, I'm, I'm going to drop some Brooklyn Bridge humor on you here. As she's standing there all the way at the top, you can tell that she definitely feels very terrobling. Brooklyn Bridge humor, huh? Yeah, there we go. Uh, but Pete, here's no joke. They were going for a great helicopter shot on top of the bridge. But I think that, not even I think, I know that it was a mix of kind of imperfect chroma key, blue screen, green screen, close-ups mixed with impressive helicopter long shots. But I think it might have just been the same helicopter shot 
of a person standing there um, used a couple times. It's a real shame that, that for whatever reason, whether it was shooting schedule, safety regulations, whatever, that they could not stick Kristen Ritter on top of there, put a helicopter by. I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of you know legal limits as to how close you can get to the bridge, but stick a telephoto lens on a camera, get Kristen Ritter on top of the Brooklyn Bridge on camera. Right. <laughs> I wish they could have done that. Instead, it was a mishmash of studio close-ups and long shots with the stunt woman. Well, you know... Uh, full disclosure, we record less than 60 miles from uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. And there have been at least two major security breaches to that bridge within the last 18 months. One where a, uh, a flag was put up. Um, so as close as the mayor's office of uh, film and TV works with these companies, particularly Marvel, which is filming four series and a mini series in New York city in just a huge infusion of cash. They're not putting somebody uh, of Kristen Ritter's ilk at the top of that bridge. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess, guess guess there are limits to even what marvel can do in new york city uh but uh with that we return to uh we return to the apartment and trisha is there but pete neither malcolm nor reuben is uh jessica's there too of course trish says that uh this had better be part of the plan uh but that uh pardon me that that she she thinks she has a plan jessica does but it's been clouded by guilt and self-loathing which, it's a uh, complex plan. It's a bad plan. It's a terrible plan as we go over here. It's a complete long shot, but that she uh, can't do anything in prison is what Trish reminds her here. Pete, we also get that rarest of TV writing, the vacuum cleaner humor. Yes, she is concerned. Uh, Jessica is that she'll be bludgeoned with her own vacuum cleaner. They both know Jess doesn't own a vacuum cleaner. It's it's a scene, Pete, which is endearing, or at least has an endearing kind of undertone there. Just this notion that Jessica does have a real concern that all these people are being killed around her, and she wants to push away people to keep them safe. Uh, there is also mention there that Jessica is still not the hero that Trish wanted, and Trish and the audience know that Jessica is starting to be that hero. But Pete, where's Ruben? Where is Ruben? He's with Malcolm, and they are by the river. And I have to tell you, this was the sweetest moment of this show so far when Malcolm, in French as he's about to drop this cinder-blocked Reuben body, says that a beautiful funeral doesn't guarantee heaven. Yeah, it's a powerful statement. It's, uh, I, I, I think, perhaps he is hoping for the opposite of that, that this uh, rather uh, rather sad and, and dirty... Uh, funeral will perhaps guarantee heaven for Reuben, uh, but we don't have much time to uh, to focus on it, Pete. Because with that, the body goes in the drink. Look, boss, just like the picture I lucked out on eBay. 
But wait, Pete, we don't know what he's talking about. Is it perhaps foreshadowing for what could be an end of the episode zinger, but instead is going to be saved for next time? Or is it some Disney corporate synergy with the Mickey Mouse phone? Wow. Wow. You know what? Wow. If the only way it gets much more synergistic is if Kilgrave has a purple lightsaber. (laughs) (laughs) But no sooner does he get in the SUV there. Um, Trish texts Simpson, uh, where are you? And uh, Jessica is at the river there confronting Malcolm. Um, He tells her that the coroner would see that the wounds were self-inflicted, but she's going to take care of this. uh, That Malcolm, she tells him, is done with this. And he holds up his cell phone. And what I thought was an unusual action that was never clear, like he was going to tape it or maybe was going to use the flashlight to light her way, doesn't really matter because a moment later, Matt, she's dripping and inside the 15th precinct going over to the desk of old Clemens there who's going to retire in a little bit. He ain't got time for this. <laughs> And he dumps, she dumps a severed head on his desk. Side note, just a little future reference for you, uh, for you cops out there. When a lady comes into a police uh, precinct dripping wet, maybe you want to stop having your conversation, see what's going on. But uh, I like Pete that they have the quick transition to her in the holding room uh, where Jerry arrives. Clearly, time has gone by because Jessica's kind of you know railing to be sent to to be sent to, to Supermax already. Um, Jessica, however, clearly waives her right to counsel. Clearly, wants to defend herself. Uh, I I would be curious to know what the real life mechanism is of determining whether someone is uh, competent enough to to uh, refuse uh, counsel from particularly if they're like an, you know a world-class lawyer but uh, Jerry is escorted out and uh, notes that Jessica still owes her the favor uh, certainly a strict interpretation Pete you would have thought that Jessica holding you know Wendy over the uh, over the train tracks was uh, was favor enough although I guess it was kind of poorly executed. And she didn't get the signature on the divorce papers. So that's not done just yet. Um, For the second time, we get the top shelf pervert line there um, with the idea that Jessica is just so desperate to wind up behind those high walls and those seven layers of security. But Clemens, as he is two years away from retiring, this is an easy collar. Come on, take it. I'm a killer. I'm a sociopath. uh, You've never killed before? Yeah, well, you never caught me. I punched a woman to death. Um, You know, I have this power inside of me that uh, she tore this guy's head off with her bare hands. Well, that would take a lot of strength and a hacksaw, he notes. And then she decides to tear the room apart before old Mahoney. Mahoney, uh, you know, we uh, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but the show is making its special effects bread and butter with small, simple effects, uh, you know, plastic cuffs or whatever it is you could rip off there. That's, you know, simple enough effect. Uh, really cool use of whatever material they made the chair out of, or at least the, you know, the, the destructible chair. Uh, it was, it was um, cake fondant. 
<laughs> uh, they yell cut. Everybody has a piece of the chair. It's delightful times on the, the soundstage. But um, I, I wished, Pete, as somebody who tries to live the spoiler-free life, I wish I had not seen a snippet of the squad room in about 60 seconds because then I wouldn't have known what was going to happen when Mahoney came in and tell her she could go. And I was like, oh, no, I know what's going to happen. And sure <laughs> enough, Pete, what does she walk out to? Uh, a really tense scene of everybody in that precinct with a gun either to their own head or to somebody else's. And it's only a matter of time until Kilgrave shows up there. He wants everybody to calm down and we get the creepiest love scene maybe ever. And it's all punctuated by these great little performances from the background actors. Each of them has this fearful look that's that's telling a story. Uh, but, of course, the focus is on Kilgrave and Jessica. She asks why he has been torturing her. And, I mean, do you need a better example of his sadism than this scene? He calls her simul- uh, simultaneously insecure and the object of his love. And, I mean, it's just... It, it's it's yet again a creepy offering here from the very charismatic David Tennant. He's amusing, he's buoyant, he's wobbly, and it's for all the wrong reasons. Uh, it's 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 masterful here out of Tennant. There's the mix of the polite and the profane. You know, he refers to the deceased Reuben as a milk toast little man boy, alongside you know him telling professing his his love as he gets upset that a that a phone rings and then declares the next person whose phone rings is gonna have to eat it um it's just tremendously acted on both sides particularly by ritter who who's gotta respond to him as he's just chewing everything up in the place and uh something that i found myself wondering about pete was you know he's close enough for her just to smash his head and and she doesn't now of course the writing room doesn't let her do that because it's episode seven uh and not for nothing that now is not a good time in the plotting of a season to kill your main bad guy but i want to talk about the character beyond that the character as, as a real person here to me it's so telling that she has the power to stop this but she can't. She can't because of the mental place he takes her, despite the fact that he's not he's not forcing her here. And I think it was just you know very very telling, and something that's in line with what we're seeing here, both both on screen and the metaphor of it all. And back to metaphor, that's the most violating point of it is that it's not command, it's coercion. That's the subversive angle of this that he wants her to do it because she wants to do it yet he's blind to the fact that he's making her do it because these people have guns to their heads and of course she's going to protect them but he's hoping that she'll come around that he'll somehow win her over talks about his yearning how much he's missed her when this is just a sick, demented love, obsession. 
Yeah, I mean, you have lines like leaving him to die has shown him uh, how he needs to be a better man. I mean, it, it, it it's the height of arrogance, I dare say, as someone who, much like you, Pete, is, is practically perfect in every way. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure our wives could agree, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it, it, it's the height of male arrogance here, you know, that her having wronged him is proof of how he can be better and therefore therefore she has done him a favor and and now that he's better she can come back you know he's coddling and close and suffocating all at once it's it's again it's it's a wonderful performance out of tenant who is not known for this type of thing pete yeah well i i think a little bit in in hamlet certainly the ability <laughs> to to play that role but he he says they are inevitable um, and it's at that point that he's having the camera footage erased, points out the limitations that he can't erase memories, but he can have somebody erase footage. It's all been deleted. They're all going to laugh when he leaves here. Like it's a hilarious joke in 30 seconds. And that so fits the flavor of this series, just the aspect that Jessica feels her life is this tragic joke. They're all laughing. They don't have any memory of what just took place. She had dumped a head on this guy's desk and now she's walking scot-free out. I can only imagine how this discussion is going to go with Hogarth when she catches up with her. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, she's got to go back and find the present. And uh, with that, we cut to her outside running back to her apartment. I, I said in my notes, Pete, running home, which was a rather prescient word considering where we're, right. uh, where we're headed for the episode. But uh, she gets there uh, looking for the present that he says that he has left her and she has yet to find. There's frantic searching. And then she sees that it's the lockbox that she dug out. Uh, that night- earlier in the episode, Malcolm had tripped over. Oh, had he? He did. Wow. Yes. Very, very nice touch there. Yeah. There uh, was one other point I wanted to make earlier. I mentioned the purple, and I, I just don't want to uh, forget to do that. And we'll connect it with Malcolm. When Malcolm went to dump the body, Matt, the Empire State Building lit up in purple. Wow. Wow. We could probably do a little digging and figure out thus when it was uh, when it was uh, filmed. but uh, Or if it's an effect. I mean, I can only yeah. imagine they, they would they would imbue that as all right we're gonna we're gonna throw that in there as a nod we got it on the skyline let's make it purple fair enough uh i like too that that quick flashback of the lockbox gives us a gives us a an effortless reminder as to what was in there which appeared even more to me to be a a thumb drive but just the fact that there's this it's a bright yellow eraser yeah (laughs) The, the the bright yellow thing is there but if it's if that particular flashback is there to remind us about the thing, well, it's also hidden by the fact that, oh, that's the box. If you don't remember that box, there's the box. And what's in there? It's Jessica Jones's journal from her teenage years. 1996 and- to 99, there are pictures of seagulls. There's a, you know, dead rabbit kind of, you know, nightmare before Christmas style there with one X'd out eye. There's bleeding hearts. There's a cityscape with clouds. And she she's freaked out that he's had this stuff 
Pax, and then Matt Robin. Yeah, I mean, here we see this this separated twin now wobbly and pathetic, and this time she's no joke. She's just a slightly damaged girl who misses her brother, her twin, something that, that neither you nor I can completely understand, not, not being twins <laughs> of each other, let alone of, of siblings. Um, but it's just it, it, it just breaks breaks your heart. And Robin notes that this is all Jessica's fault, that everything was fine before Jessica Jones. And can you argue that? You can't. That he can't go to the zoo, not going to be able to see the giraffes. He loves those long necks, Matt. He's very sensitive about his neck. You should know that. So she thinks that they are together here with what Malcolm said, that they're involved Okay, that he won't eat his crust if it's got seeds on it. She's giving him his instructions, which is all the more tragic given what's going on. Okay, but, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to hire you now. You know, you're a PI. You can you can find him. And that's just not the way it's going to go. She gets in a cab. She's over there on Higgins and Birch. It is a gorgeous day. And there's the it's not so much a flashback as she is seeing what happened at one point in her life. Yeah, I mean, it's a flashback for us. I think it's meant to be, you know, it's she is remembering back uh, to having left her journal in the home. Uh, Mama Walker, a controlling, difficult woman, love the way they underplay not only is Trish distant from Jessica, so clearly it's it's newer in the uh, the foster slash adoptive process, but um, there's just that that big bruise on Trish's neck that just speaks speaks volumes. They underplay it. I mean, again, great casting here from the two young ladies. Uh, I mean, dead ringers for the adult actresses. And uh, with that, we come back to present day, and Kilgrave is there, Pete. Yeah, and no purple. He's got the black V-neck on. He's got the jeans. This this could be any really, really handsome dad in the neighborhood <laughs> uh, with a British accent. And they go in, and uh, Simpson watches all of this. And as the door closes, there's this look of revulsion on Jessica's face as the episode ends. What suspects draw our focus in this episode, Pete? Let's start with Kilgrave. From the end of the episode, bringing her into her childhood home, which apparently creepily now has a Mickey Mouse phone in the bedroom to the beginning where he's marking his territory in her bathroom as he's checking out what's in the shower. David Tennant owns the Marvel villainy forever. I mean, it is just a remarkable performance out of him and the fact that he is able to link up his charm with the darkness of this character is is just remarkable i mean i mean I, I can't say anything more than that he's he's he has surpassed all the villains that have come before him 
Matt, Wendy, uh, initially sympathetic in this episode, winds up on our list of uh, suspects here for the way she turns it around. Not uh, undeserving to Hogarth, but not pure as we've seen before. Pete, I I give her a bit of a pass. Uh, love might be blind, but payback is a B. And I think that at whatever point Wendy was starting to be concerned about her marriage. Well, let me put it this way, Pete. She's hung on to this email since since the AOL days. Dun, dun, dun. So <laughs> yeah, like, they went through the merger like a decade ago now. <laughs> so, so clearly she has wanted to keep this in her back pocket just in case – the love she thought she was getting turned out to be, you know, untrue. I don't fault her for that. I don't fault her for saying, fine, you don't appreciate me for love. You don't appreciate me for commitment. Uh, you do appreciate your money. Let me take three out of four of those dollars, please. Um, I think that she's she's demanded this this lofty uh, divorce settlement to to try and hurt back the wife that has hurt her so deeply. Well, let's talk about her wife here in Hogarth. When we last saw her before this episode, she was making sure she got the aborted remains of Hope's pregnancy. And now she's uh, fending off uh, Jessica as um, an actual client in addition to trying to secure these divorce papers playing hardball there is less and less slowly that can be liked uh about uh, jerry i know you've been kind of more advanced in in looking for sources of villainy i just see kind of a, a slightly cold professional person i hope that doesn't come off to our listeners as uh as uh hey she's a professional woman therefore she is cold because that certainly isn't what i'm i'm trying to suggest no but, of course of course not but i think that if part of their job is to slowly turn her into somebody who it's like, oh, not my friend, but hell of a lawyer, you know, that into slow dislike. Well, Pete, we're halfway there and halfway through the season. Yeah, but again, consider that act that that really went over the top by, you know, taking the remains to a lab. What What's going to go on there? That's the really over the top thing that I think we have to continue to consider her in a villainous light last one matt here well, this isn't quite cryptology but but could you explain could you finish that thought pete because are you suggesting like some kind of you know get the dna for superpowers or are you suggesting something much more earthly in terms of underhanded lawyer lawyering like finish that thought well i'm i'm not going to spoil uh, but what I will throw out the idea is why can't it potentially be both? I would be interested to see how they handle all of that because I think you're walking a little bit of a fine line when this was made, let alone since then and the, the current climate and all of that as to where you want to go story-wise. But uh, Pete, for those of us who are spoiler-free, time will tell. And then lastly, Matt, let's look at Dorothy, this uh, much bandied about stage mom 
is worse than we thought. Arguably the second biggest villain in the episode. Uh, it is impossible to surpass Kilgrave's villainy, of course, but in terms of uh, Dorothy being not just an absent mother to her adult child, which is unfortunate, that happens sometimes, uh, but to have been clearly manipulative, clearly abusive, I mean, there's no gray area when you see that bruise on, on Trisha's neck, and the story implication that it came from mom is is totally apparent and all that that entails all the stories therefore may well be true about uh about the drug prescription about the abuse about uh you know what she would do to advance her career slash her daughter's career probably in that order you know she's she's as bad a person as as we have met in the real world, and it's only trumped by Kilgrave, who is who is made worse by his fictional deeds. Cryptology, where we uncover hidden messages and larger themes. Pete, let's start with the uh, the the cliffhanger for the episode. Uh, what exactly it will be in the house? Uh, I know, of course. The great and wise Pete knows all and sees all, and and you're on your fifth or sixth watch uh, of the of the season. But my prediction would be that not only is it that he's tried to recreate a happy home of her past, but that with that kind of comes a weird, sick, you know, it's her girlish home. He's I'm not saying he is going to treat her more as a girl and all that that would suggest, which is equally creepy and wrong, but just that there's going to be some of that flavor there where he's trying to create this happy place where she can be a girl again. And to me, that's just completely in line with this awful, awful guy. The concept of playing house, as it were, here, the the mix of the the childhood items the you know her first telephone back at a at a time in the late 90s when that still was kind of a big deal for a, a a kid a girl to get that and the journal and she's somebody who you know i i thought we might see a childhood jessica that wasn't edgy but clearly she was not made edgy or goth or emo or whatever we're going to call it in in the current day um by the death of her parents she seems to have been like that prior to it you know having left the uh the journal under the floorboard as dorothy's moving her into wherever they live and um you know that he's really reaching back into her past here this is some seriously manipulative stuff and the line that he had spoken um in the police precinct you know don't presume to know me uh with his love that he had never loved anything in the past i i think that's very important to whatever degree they are crafting these shows to be consciously different of each other. 
it's it's a smart move to have made such a nuanced and sympathetic character in uh in the kingpin in daredevil and then to just simply say this is a black-hatted villain who is we're going to get an actor who can bring a lot of positives to it but we're not giving this guy any positives i mean there is no point where you sit and go oh now i understand the metaphorical and literal assaults this character has placed upon women oh now it has a context where eh, you know we're, we're not we're not going to get there period there's probably not a there to get at at all let alone that's not what this show is going to do so the fact that he is just so absolutely rotten and despicable is something that uh, i think the show is the show is still finding ways to explore that even though it would appear to be one note and I think a lot of people have struggled with their feelings for the actor as opposed to the character. And, you know, that you mentioned Kingpin and, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio doesn't strike you as a, a sympathetic actor and that he played a villain that way. And here the reverse is true when you have a likable guy from you know, British theater who's, who's effervescent even in this role, yet you still know what a horrible, horrible guy this is. Um, and whatever he's up to, Matt, it ain't good. Let's check our mail drop. Here's what you have to say, Pete. I have a pair of iTunes reviews, Matt. The first courtesy of Nikki Biscuits 87. And his five-star review is headlined five-star podcast for a three-star show. Ooh. And it reads, um, I'm all too aware that this might be an unpopular review of Jessica Jones, but I decided to write in to contrast a bit with the diehard J.J. praise. While the show surprised and wowed me on many levels, it's much more flawed than Daredevil. Quick rundown. Praise. Incredible, dynamic female lead. Both the character and its portrayal. Somehow darker and seedier than D.D. Daredevil. Uh, deepening the tone of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Tremendously compelling and poignant overarching metaphor. Criticism, not enough diverse conflict. Basically one singular villain, albeit a strong one. Plots get repetitive and solutions seem random. It's loose on the story threads with several tedious subplots drawn out over 13 episodes. I felt like the whole of J.J. could have been told in eight to nine episodes. Some grating, probably unnecessary side characters, kind of flails toward the end story-wise, getting more and more convoluted as it comes to a close. Note, Netflix Daredevil still stands with my favorite uh, stands as my favorite MCU incarnation incredibly tight 
complex storytelling with strong and absolutely necessary characters. Now, why did I need to share my opinion of the show? To better articulate how much I appreciate Matt and Peter and their fantastic podcast. I've revisited DD several times and only just recently found the PG, Fantastic Geek, podcast, an absolute essential accompaniment to the series. Their turn with JJ is no less impressive and enjoyable, offering detailed analysis of each story beat, shining light on minor items I missed, and not shying away from pointing out the occasional weak elements of the series. These guys are quite smart and funny, are uh, and their infectious passion for the MCU comes through with each podcast. It's like they're compelling me to re-examine the series with their strange mind control superpower. Hmm. While JJ doesn't land as nicely as DD, in my honest opinion, I'm so happy I finished the series so that I can tune in to Fantastic Geek's weekly breakdown of the episodes Thank you guys for helping me appreciate a second Marvel series. No doubt I'll catch up with your other seasons when I'm done with this one. Cheers. Pete, in one second, I will lash, laugh appreciatively. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki, for the kind words there, especially the part about us being smarts and stuff. Um, I appreciate that that review was in context of uh, flaws he has found in the series. Uh, I think that if if there's one thing that we pride ourselves on doing, Pete, it's calling it as we see it. And I will be interested to bear Nikki's words in mind for the rest of the season. Uh, I have not seen evidence of that in my view and for, for my tastes, but um, I mean, it's something to watch out for. I guess I guess we'll see. I'd be interested to hear what other people think. Uh, of the second half of the season as we work through it but uh, i really appreciate that that the time was taken there to to give us praise amidst kind of the context of of the thoughts of the show so thanks again Longtime listeners uh will know i am a former full-time journalist and i take shooting it down the middle as far as opinion very very seriously and and matt knows this as well so to to get that praise uh we must be doing something right the only time i've ever heard pete swear was when uh was when we happened to get together to watch the episode of daredevil and i won't spoil anything i'll just say Something happens to a uh, to a reporter character when he chats with Kingpin. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever heard Pete just just let loose with just a string of obscenities because <laughs> that's how seriously he takes the journalism. Yeah. Uh, our second uh, review here comes from Nerdy Cowboy with a K, not nerdy, but cowboy. Canerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, the headline is "Great Show Review Podcast Five Stars." And it is short and sweet. Uh, listening to other podcasts, I couldn't find any that dug down into the details as I enjoy doing. Really enjoy the show and will continue to listen. 
Pete, we love having the conversation. I don't know that we would naturally, without a podcast, spend an hour and 15 minutes talking about this particular episode, but uh, we love having these conversations, and we love that uh, that people are liking our, our particular brand here, kind of what we do, our take of things, and I uh, appreciate uh, our nerdy pal there for uh, joining in the conversation. And want to thank them as well and just remind everybody that you not only uh, help us when you leave some feedback for us on iTunes, you help others find us or, hey, maybe you want to warn them about us. Either works. (laughs) Uh, No such thing as bad publicity and uh, really appreciative of anybody who would take the time. The longest listeners will know that uh, that the biggest help we ever got was from a listener who <laughs> who didn't like what she was hearing, and that ended up being something really magical. Pete, that'll be a story for another another day and another time. Maybe maybe this summer we'll we'll revisit the the, the, the lore of Fantastic Geek. But but Pete, you know what is even greater than the mysterious lore and online run-ins with girlfriends of celebrities? It's interacting with you on Twitter. How can people do so? <laughs> okay, e- even that transition I found to be lousy this time. <laughs> I, I I think there's a there's something salvageable there. <laughs> but Pete, how can people be in touch with you on the Twitter? You can find me at Peter P I E T E R J K E T L A R K E T E L A A R six thousand. 799 followers can't be wrong who will be the next one while i am personally on twitter as looking back lost you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways we are fantastic geek that's fantastic with a ph and you can find us under that name on the dot com the gmail the twitter also the listener line 732-707-1815 to hear your voice on the podcast but wait pete there's more Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word. And I'm going to issue a challenge, Jessica Jones listeners. The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. listeners are very active, particularly of late on our Facebook page. Let's see Jessica Jones represent. Ooh, absolutely. Can't go wrong with the Facebook. Well, that Pete, we will be back next uh, this next upcoming Sunday to continue the adventure for episode 108, and uh, certainly looking forward to that, and uh, particularly with uh, with Agents of Shield on its uh, hiatus and uh, no Agent Carter until uh, until the second half of January. If you are listening to this on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, it's going to be mostly Marvel, but Pete. I heard that there's some there, there there's a movie that's coming out next week that we might be talking about. I'm a little unfamiliar with it. Uh, I understand it's uh, it's it's some British actors. I'm not I haven't heard of. I guess they weren't on the Doctor Who. So kind of looking forward to checking that out with you. Still a little still a little unclear as to what's going on there with that. We'll see if we can uh, shed some light into uh, that franchise little uh, holiday cheer coming up as well and a fantastic geek tradition has been to uh, record a commentary of a well-known holiday movie in addition to making some of our older ones available there that week of Christmas we've done a Christmas story 
um, and some others. So uh, might even run a poll. So keep on a uh, keep a, keep a watch out for that. But a uh, lot a uh, lot to look forward here as uh, we head into the, uh, the holidays. That is, of course, as mentioned, for those of you listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, if you're just with us on the Jessica Jones feed, that's okay. I guess you don't like the Stars War or the Christmasing movies, uh, but we will certainly be back uh, continuing with Tuesdays and Thursdays for Jessica Jones until, uh, until this season is wrapped up. However, Pete, this episode is wrapped up, so I will say Arrivederci to all our listeners and give you the final word. I was just leaving. You didn't kick me out. I left. Bye.